Amen. And now, as we consider the teaching of God's holy word on those great events of which we have been singing, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight. O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. I have to confess that I very nearly, uh, during that uh, timeline quiz that I did earlier in the service, I very nearly quoted um, a verse from an old children's hymn. In the event, I didn't really need to do so because um, uh, our organist, Richard, uh, quoted the tune of that very hymn that I had in mind as the children left. I don't know how many of you recognised the words uh, that go along with that tune. It's as follows... Uh, God has given us a book full of stories, which was made for his people of old. It begins with the tale of a garden and ends with the city of gold. A lovely little verse telling us that there is a story to be told. There is a timeline. There are events that are in the past for which we praise God for, and there's still something left for the future. Concerning that then, please, would you turn back with me in your Bibles to the second epistle of Peter, and chapter 3. And uh, in the Church Bibles, it's page 1, 2, 2, 3, and 4. Second Peter, chapter 3. If only we'd known how that holiday would turn out, muttered the Jones family as they returned wet and muddy from a week of camping in North Wales. If only we'd known how that, how that marriage would turn out, reflected Jenny and Brian as they signed their divorce papers. If only we'd known how that evening would turn out, lamented the family of a young man who was shot in the back after asking some customers to stop smoking. Of course, although some things turn out worse than we feared, others end up better than we had dared hoped for, including holidays, marriages and evenings out. But we can't help thinking, can we? If only we knew what the future holds, will we end up looking back with pleasure or with regret? Should we look forward with hope or with despair? Hindsight always seems to be twenty-twenty. Foresight needs help to see even beyond the ends of our noses. Cue the Old Testament prophets. Now, it's often said that Isaiah, Jeremiah and the others were forth-tellers rather than foretellers. That is to say that they focused on their own times rather than on the future. But this is a half-truth, and like many half-truths, is misleading. The fact is that the prophets often did look to the future. They often spoke of a time that sometimes to them seemed close at hand and at other times far off. A time that they called the Day of the Lord. The earliest mention of the day of the Lord comes in the book of the prophet Amos. He prophesied in the northern kingdom, excuse me, 
the northern kingdom of Israel, just a few decades before the disintegration of that kingdom. It's clear from what Amos says that the day of the Lord was already a well-known, if much-abused, concept. Amos chapter 5 says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear, as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? asks Amos, pitch dark without a ray of brightness. The Israelites of Amos's day then were obviously longing for a day when God would destroy their enemies. But what they'd failed to realize that they, because of their own faithfulness and disobedience, would experience that day as a ruinous day for themselves. A day certainly of gathering storm clouds. But alongside those storm clouds of divine judgment, the prophets, when they think of the day of the Lord, also glimpse the rainbow of God's mercy. Zephaniah was a prophet from the southern kingdom of Judah. Its people were soon to be dragged off bit by bit into exile. But on the far side of that terrible and lonely experience lay hope. Zephaniah chapter 3. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honor and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. A day of storm clouds, a day of the rainbow of God's mercy. The New Testament also speaks of the day of the Lord. It asserts that beginning with the coming of Christ and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we are already living in the last days. First chapter of Hebrews, in these last days, God has spoken to us by a son. And these last days will culminate in the last day. Sometimes in the, in the New Testament it's simply called that day or even just the day. As if it were the only day in all the millennia of human history that really matters in the end. But the most striking thing about the teaching of the New Testament about the day of the Lord is that it is, very emphatically, the day of Christ. Listen to what Jesus himself has to say in John chapter 6. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but raise them up at the last 
day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And so given the centrality of Jesus Christ to the last day, it comes as no surprise that we find the apostles, such as Paul, referring to the last day as the day of Christ, or the day of Christ Jesus, or the day of the Lord Jesus, and so on, in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, and in other writings. But now turning at last to 2 Peter chapter 3, we find this apostle um, referring back to all of this earlier teaching. Do you see how he says in verse 2, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, So that's Amos and Zephaniah and all the others. And the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. That includes teaching about his return and his raising people to life in the last day as taught to his apostles and recorded by the Apostle John. Peter wants his readers to recall that they are already living in the last days. Do you see that phrase in verse 3? And these last days will culminate in that great day known as the day of the Lord, called such in verse 10. And Peter wants to remind his readers that Jesus is central to all of this. After all, who for Peter is now the Lord? Why, it's none other in verse 2 than our Lord and Saviour, obviously Jesus Christ. And again, even more clearly in verse 18, It's our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Yes, indeed, the day of the Lord is the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the day of the Lord is the day of his promised coming, in verse 4. Once again, Peter sees the gathering clouds of God's judgment. In verse 7, the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In verse 10, he says, the heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. But Peter's too sees the rainbow of God's goodness and mercy. Final judgment, you see, is not just about condemning all that is wrong, it's also about putting all wrongs to right. So drastic will this be that Peter describes the complete destruction of the present creation and the ushering in of a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness, verse 13. Friends, this mixed-up world, with all its beauty and all its disaster, this mixed-up world will be put to rights. Evil will be finally overcome. God will settle his accounts with those who have loved wickedness. Justice and peace will rule after all. God's people, long oppressed, will enjoy his blessing in a restored paradise. But why is it taking so long? That was the question being asked by certain scoffers in Peter's day. Do you see how in verse 9 they say, Where is this coming, he promised, ever since our fathers died? Everything goes on as it has before the beginning, since the beginning of creation. No change, no change at all. Nothing will happen. Everything's just the same as before. 
Well, the reason for the, for the delay in all of this happening, the delay in the day of the Lord, is not that God, that God has gone to sleep on the job or that he has changed his mind. It is that God is being patient. Verse 9. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I wonder if you have ever had the experience of a very unsatisfactory situation at work. People not pulling their weight, critical mistakes being made, important things being forgotten. You warn, you guide, you encourage. You give ample opportunity for people to see the error of their ways and make some changes. But finally, in the end, the time comes when you have to say, that's it. Enough is enough. I've been patient long enough. I'm coming to sort this out. Let us not presume on God's patience. I'd like to give you a quote from a Puritan writer called George Swinnick about presuming on God's patience and not taking action now to get right with him. This Puritan writer says the following, All the while thou delayest, God is more provoked, the wicked one more encouraged, thy heart more hardened, thy debts more increased, thy soul more endangered, and all the difficulties of conversion more and more multiplied upon thee, having a day more to repent of and a day less to repent in. Don't leave it any longer. If you have not made your peace with God, while today is called today, do not harden your heart. Open your heart to God and our Saviour Jesus Christ. Because we're already living in the last days and the day of the Lord, that ultimate, that final day, is approaching. The clouds of judgment are gathering, but the rainbow of God's mercy still shines brightly. Now, in view of these things, Peter asks in verse 11, what kind of people ought you to be? And then he items, itemizes a few answers to that question. How then should we live in the light of this coming day of the Lord? Well, firstly, in verse 11, let us live holy and godly lives. Our lives will, will be godly if, like God himself, we adopt an attitude of patience and mercy, of love and compassion toward those who do not yet know him. That's what God is like. Let God's people be like that too. Secondly, let us look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, verse 12. How often do we, how often do I, how often do you think about the return of Christ? Anthony Ashley Cooper was elected to Parliament in 1826 at the age of 25. First in the House of Commons and then in the House of Lords as the the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, he concerned himself successfully with the plight of the mentally ill, 
child workers in the factories and mills, chimney sweeps, women and children children in the mines, and the children of the slums, more than 30,000 of whom in London were without a home, and more than a million of whom in the whole country were, were without schooling. His biographer concludes, no man has ever done more to lessen the extent of human misery or to add to the sum total of human happiness. Now that man, Shaftesbury, said near the end of his life, I do not think that in the last 40 years I have lived one conscious hour that was not influenced by the thought of our Lord's return. Too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good? I don't think so. And then again, Peter says, in the light of the coming day of the Lord, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him, verse 14. If parents left their teenage children at home for a few days and said, we'll be back on Sunday evening, 9.30 sharp, then the dirty dishes the empty pizza boxes and the stains on the carpet might well be left till 9.25 on that Sunday evening. If, however, the parents said, we're going away, but we could be back at any time, then there would be a much better chance that the house wouldn't have been trashed in the first place. And then again, Peter says, be on your guard in the light of these things. Verse 17, be on your guard. The main purpose of this whole epistle is to warn believers against false teachers who, amongst other things, mock the prospect of Christ's return. As we've already seen, a big part of Peter's antidote to this is what we might call the ministry of reminding Chapter 1 and verse 12, I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. Chapter 3 and verse 1, as we've seen, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders. And then verse 2, I want you to recall. Verse 17, since you already know this, be on your guard. Do you see the ministry of reminding Let us listen by all means to one another's new ideas, new insights, new understandings of the Christian faith. But let's be prepared too to walk the old paths and to remind one another of old and established truths. Be on our guard. And we can sum all of this up in the words, I think, of verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And if we do so, we will learn what it means to live for him in these last days. Be ready to meet him at the last day and prepared to live with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth, which will be the home of righteousness. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, it may be that we are not sure whether we want to live in the home of righteousness. We ask you now to make us and change us and bend us and renew us so we love the things that you love, believe the things that you say are truth and do the things that you call us to do so that we may be useful to your kingdom and your purposes in this life and speed and hasten 
the return of our beloved Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.